Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Summer vacation, here we come. Yep, I packed the craft beers I got at Total Wine. Did you remember a bathing suit? No, but I did pack a bunch of summer wines. Whites, rosés, Zinfandels. Wondrous selection, helpful guides, ridiculously low prices. Total Wine and more. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. My name is Dave Hanrod. That was terrible. What was that? I'll do it again. I'll do it <laughs> Let's again. Let's keep that. I'll no, do it no. again. Keep no, it. Fine. That. Yeah, I don't care. I, I don't know what I was going for. Let's do it again. Keep that. Like, who, who gives a fuck? I'm in a dark room. It's sunny outside. I'm drinking hot green tea. I don't. I'm, I'm a fucking mess. Let's do it. All over Hello, the place. Hello, my name is Dave Hanrod. Hello, my name is Dave Hanrod, and there will be no encore. <laughs> Keeping all Welcome this in. <laughs> to episode 276 of the No Encore Music Podcast and the Heads of Podcast Network. Uh, that was a laborious introduction. I do apologise. It's one of those weeks. It's absolutely roasting. Craig Fitzpatrick, are you feeling the uh, summer vibes, man? Are you feeling good? Yeah, that's, you know, starting as we mean to go on with the laborious summer vibes. <laughs> well, it um, has I, been. You I know? have the window a smidgen open, so there's some summer getting in, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I've got quite noisy neighbours out the back. Well, I presume like, that... Um, there's a dude... Have you ever found, like, with a certain kind of age of irish male they can't like go out in the garden when it's warm without doing something noisy yeah like it's either barbecue or else it's like get the bandsaw out he's very much the bandsaw dude like there'll be hacking there'll be banging i'll close it when the time comes well maybe uh tony Ulhan will be around to put a big fucking fence around the guy yeah there's some there's some topical political commentary on this music podcast that's what you come <laughs> here for isn't it so uh coming up on the show this week it's top five overhyped acts and we'll be reviewing the new album from black midi are those two things related perhaps <laughs> 
We don't know yet, but we will find out over the course of this episode. Uh, should note, we're going to record a new episode of No Ox Cord, our monthly recommends corner. We're going to record that over the Bank Holiday weekend because we just can't stop working. You know, like, like Bank Holiday weekend means nothing to us. So myself and Craig and Adam will convene via Zoom to chat about music and things. So it's an extra yeah, bonus episode gotta, you get. Got to keep grinding. <laughs> you can't stop the machine. And uh, it's patreon.com slash noencore. If you would like to help support this show, we are fiercely independent. We do appreciate all the love that we get over there and in return we give you our love and of course a monthly bonus episode episode previews and so on patreon.com slash no encore if you feel like uh, shelling out for a takeaway point for the lads on this bank holiday weekend because we won't be doing that because we're very socially respectable people craig aren't we you wouldn't catch us well, I guess you would catch us if you, like, you know, if, if you did catch us on, on the news. You'd have to be up very early in the morning to catch <laughs> us, Dave. <laughs> that is the fear, though, isn't it? Like, any time you go for any any class of outdoor beverage now, you're just like, these days, you know, in England. Is this you know, something you're dealing with in, in the heart up. of Dublin? It's this is kind of quite a bougie problem. In, out here in Kildare, it's just, you just find your yeah, fields. Yeah. I mean, I've had a few... Nothing but the cows to worry about. I've had a few legal city-based, you know, um, liquid breads, I suppose you could call them. And essentially it's a... Liquid breads? Someone this week referred to beer as liquid bread. And I was like, I guess that makes sense. I mean, if you break it down, it sounds like a health drink. Isn't it? Like liquid bread. I can't wait to get my barley hops and oats drink. You know, it's just very... Really, it's disgusting when you think about it. (laughs) It's fucking horrible. But yeah, so uh, you worry. You worry that someone's going to whip out their phone and be like, look at that guy there. You know, his pint. How dare he? Anyway, look, I'm getting very sidetracked. Getting Getting very sidetracked and one of my feet has already gone to sleep. So let's move on. Um, No Oxcord coming soon. Patreon.com slash no encore. Next week on the show, though, as well uh, as our usual episode, we're going to have an extra episode next week. It's out on Tuesday. Craig and I had the chance to chat to Royal Yellow, Mark O'Brien, formerly of Enemies, now of Royal Yellow. Uh, He was actually a guest co-host on this very show a few months ago with Craig when they talked about filthy music, and that was an enjoyable experience. And oh, yes. uh, Craig and I had the chance to catch up with him because he's got a brand new EP, his debut EP. It's called Still Until. It is out now. It is three tracks long, 23 minutes long, and it fucking rules. Here now is a preview of our interview that's arriving on Tuesday. Um, I think at a time when we were in it, we would we we could often sort of like say to ourselves, like, oh, you know, we work so hard on our... On our we were really proud of our art and there were definitely times as as happens to any band where you can kind of think, oh, we deserve so much more. Yeah, I mean, you see it, you see it every year with like when awards shit, when the choice comes around and stuff like I think on some level, everyone who's nominated for the choice award thinks that they should win it. You know, when it's your band, you're you're so close to it and it's so precious to you that sometimes you're just like, yeah, you know what? We're not getting the juice that we deserve, but. Looking back on it now, I mean, Jesus Christ, the things that it achieved, like being able to tour all over Europe, Asia, you know, Hong Kong, Taipei, Japan, um, to put out three albums that like, you know, I still get messaged about when I go online, you know, the YouTube comments are beautiful. You know, I think, yeah, I think now with a little bit of hindsight, I think we did get our Jews and, and then some, you know, I, I really do think it was quite amazing how well it did for you know four guys from north wicklow mark o'brien there alias royal yellow talking about his time in enemies we discussed that and we of course discussed royal yellow how it came to be what it means what it is and that's coming out on tuesday before we crack on with this show one more thing as well uh in relation to last week's top five i believe we did 
What did we do last week, Craig? I'm losing my mind. We did uh, driving songs, wasn't it? Songs about driving. That's right. Yeah. And lots of people, lots of people were, were saying like, this is ridiculous. None of you drive. And I was like, yeah, no, we, we highlighted <laughs> a lot through, <laughs> through the episode. <laughs> Hold but, on. Um, we should, we did, we pointed that out. And also the clear distinction being that it was songs about driving, not songs that are great while you're driving. That's a totally different top five, which we're not qualified to do. Maybe one day, but we'll maybe someday. It. Possibly. I will say, though, I uh, got some good listener correspondence because, of course, I included Igloo and Hartley in my list. So over on patreon.com slash noencore, listener to the show, Matt Doyle, said, I went to see Igloo and Hartley at the Trinity College Dublin Freshers Ball in the Academy in 2008. Oh, <laughs> <The band laughs> what a time to be alive. Incredible. <laughs> the band came down after finishing their set to watch Hell's Bells start up after them. Oh, university gigs. Now, I don't know who Hell's Bells are. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that they're probably a popular well established ACDC tribute band yes yeah I okay exactly. yeah uh, yeah I, I'm confident of that one so Matt continues that I found myself standing next to the guitarist from Igloo and Hartley and I told him that they played a good set he goes oh thanks so much man and went straight for a hug no bother except he poured his totally full drink down my back and arm after I jumped back in shock I was told don't worry man it's just vodka Decent gig, fun night. So there you go. <laughs> I mentioned that I hugged them after their Wheeling show. They're huggers. This is further confirmation that they're just people who want to get involved, you know? Not for the past year, they haven't been. I should hope. Well, we don't know. Hopefully we'll get back to that sometime. We don't know. I will just say, I hope, like, Hell's Bells, if they're not an ACDC tribute act, it could still be quite a nice learner for them, right? <laughs> like, they're just doing something completely different, but just random bookers are kind of calling them up and being like, this has got to be an ACDC tribute act, just taking those gigs. You hope so. But you never know. Anyway, look, let's kick off the show proper. Hey, you heard about the good news? And here to give us all of this week's music news, it's the man who put it together, Craig Fitzpatrick. You really shouldn't have. <laughs> Big no Gallagher news. Um, the man who has disappointed us all by, yeah, that's right, not getting Oasis back together. Oh, also all the COVID talk as well. Um, the conspiracy theory stuff, uh, the slightly anti-vax stuff. Uh, he's got his job, Dave. He's got his job before us. <laughs> Thank God. I'm delighted. Excellent. He'll really appreciate it as well, I'm sure. This is a very Brexit move, isn't it? It's like, you know, after Brexit came in, it's like they've got Boris, they see him entirely fecked, and yet they still vaccinate everyone ahead of good old-fashioned Ireland. Um, but yeah, Noel's got it sorted. He's been speaking to his doctor and his doctor said he was a fool uh, for not wanting to get it, which is pretty right on. Um, He also kind of opens up about how he was talking to the Radio Times, which feels like the perfect publication, I guess, for this kind of chat. How is that still going, by the way, the Radio Times? (laughs) It's a print magazine about radio. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) Well, they're getting big interviews. Um... So yeah, Noel had initially said for people that weren't kind of keeping up to speed with this developing story that like he wasn't afraid of getting the virus. Uh, he was very much against like wearing a mask and Selfridges. Um, and he's been on the whole kind of like, listen, not getting a vaccine is a human right um, trip, <laughs> which is, I guess, you know, you couldn't have that argument maybe on a different podcast. <laughs> Well, but he's got uh, it. it. It's actually it kind of transpires in the details of this, right? That he was actually <laughs> he seemed a bit more concerned about uh, hair loss resulting from getting the job. Uh, his doctor reassured him that there's no evidence to suggest it's a side effect, so he sorted there. He said to his doctor, "So you're saying I should take it?" And the doctor apparently responded, "No, I'm saying if you don't take it, you're a fool." Classic bedside manner there. Um, not to harp on too much about the negativities that Noel Gallagher does espouse, but it's worth getting into his 
continuation and doubling down. Like, I presume, like, as the needle was going into his arm, he's probably just like, no, I have to really, like, you know, assert my position. Uh, <laughs> he tells the Radio Times, uh, given out about celebrities who have told people that they should get it. He said, uh, you know, the human right thing, yeah. He goes, the people who are virtue signaling, uh, they're lofty wagging their finger at people who are declining it can F off. That's how fascism starts. It, it isn't. <laughs> I'll tell you. He goes uh, on to say, when I sit at home and in between the football, there's um, public service announcements with Lenny Henry saying, take the job, looking like an abandoned dog. I'm like, mate, you take the job. It's up to you. So the looking like fascism starts with the, Lenny Henry yeah, the, appearing uh, on the TV screen. I, I, I'll say, like, I mean, Noel Gallagher, Liam Gallagher, they're, they're good rent quotes. Like, looking like an abandoned dog is pretty funny. It's a bit partridgey, but yeah. Uh, he's a fucking asshole, Craig. But wasn't it fun, though, to see, was it Liam or was it Noel who was present for Manchester City's Champions oh, League loss? Oh, Liam in his hoodie just looking, yeah, downcast. Yeah, uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> after, just days after, he'd been slagging off United for crashing out of the Europa, the last hurdle. Um so yeah, it was it was a beautiful, beautiful bit of like instant karma for him there, which was fantastic. I do like the fact that Liam has been very pro-mask and like pro-vaccine. You've got to assume just because Noel's been so against it. <laughs> I'd say so. Like, I feel like Liam Gallagher is going to eventually become a full-on like socialist <laughs> just because Noel's against it. Do you know what I mean? He could be the new Danny Dyer. Remember when, didn't Danny Dyer, or, or no, no, I'm thinking of Joey Barton. Remember when Joey Barton, everyone's like, he's the thinking man's footballer. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because he'd quote the Smiths. <laughs> And it was like, okay. The philosophical job, yeah. <laughs> in between, like, <laughs> putting out, like, cigarettes in people's eye sockets and stuff like that, yeah. Moving on. Uh, Speaking so, of questionable decisions, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lil Uzi Vert, uh, who we've talked about before and is, um, his, his taste, I guess, in facial embellishments, would that be uh, the technical term for this kind of move? He had basically a $24 million diamond implanted in his forehead. It was, of course, a news story for us, um, mainly because of his uh, rationale behind it when people were like coming at him and being like, this is just the, the audacity of this. And his whole thing was just like, oh, this is a very expensive diamond and I'm going to lose it unless it's implanted in my forehead. Well, he's been spotted without it, Dave. <laughs> um, and he actually hasn't actually confirmed that he's got it like properly medically removed. There's just been snaps of him not sporting it. Um, so maybe he lost it. Well, he said he, he was, kind of, yeah, he, said he, he was, said he was bleeding. Which means it yeah. probably fell out, right? Which is not good. I, I'd love to know what Noel Gallagher's doctor makes of this situation, because I can't imagine he would come down, you know, I'd say he'd be fairly critical of what has transpired. And I guess the only thing to do now, and again, it has been mentioned, of course, that he's been paying off this diamond for years. Uh, he's now going to have to just treat it like a normal diamond. He will lose it. He's almost lost it. It didn't work. Yeah, uh, the experiment was a failure, but it was uh, it was a worthwhile endeavour, I guess. Uh, a representative for the jeweller, Elliot Aliante, uh, has said that actually the diamond was as safe as any other piercing, so he shouldn't have been bleeding from his head. <laughs> so his poor craftsmanship is what we're saying here. Yeah, he didn't yeah, do... I guess so. You, like, you have to spend money. I mean, like, as someone who has lots of tattoos and several piercings, I will say, you know, you get what you pay for what was the what was the most painful job tattoo um yeah. i don't know i mean like i've one of my calf which i didn't feel anything on i was reading a book while doing that that was kind of nice um I, I got really like fucked up one night it was probably one of those hot press nights out i went in the next day and the, to get something done on my inner arm and the tattoo artist was like were you out last night and i was like oh yeah and she was just like you're a fucking idiot like you're oh, not supposed to drink we're not supposed to drink 24 hours before you get tattooed it thins the blood or something so that sucked it's more like 
it was never unbearably bad, but it's just the more you do it, it just turns into like, just imagine someone like scraping cotton wool off your, your like your arm for approximately three hours solid. That will eventually become like water torture or something. Like it's, the more it happens, the more you're kind of like, oh, Jesus, get away. But no, um, so far, so good. When, when you mentioned the calf one, I was just, and you know, obviously the fact that your leg is going dead, I was thinking, could you just kind of improvise and make your own leg or arm go dead for the duration? But then I'm like, Craig, I don't know, cutting off blood circulation to probably you know, not a the limb, best while, you know, idea. for a four hour procedure, probably not the best idea. You but. don't have any tattoos or piercings, am I correct? I've got nothing, no. Wow. I don't have anything. I would, I actually would, I think I would like to get a tattoo, but I can you never You said this, you said this so often though. I, I I've heard, like, I've heard this so often that I'm just like, it's class. This is like when you said you'd shave your head that time and of course it never <laughs> happened. Never happened. Well, as one long of as these days, them. I'm going to hop on the Zoom call with like a complete a shaved head, head yeah. facial tattoos, Shane uh, going $24 your nose to your million dollar diamond in the forehead. Fair enough. While you say then, mate, while you say then. I will ask why I wasn't involved. I I, I got a tattoo, Dahi, especially I got a tattoo with Dahi. That's not, that, that sounds like we had some weird thing going on. No, Dahi was getting a tattoo once and I said I'd go with him. And I was almost late and he was really upset. He, like he was, like you could tell he was not happy. He was just like, I, I was like a bit, uh, 60 seconds late maybe. I think I was hungover or something. Was he um, nervous? I think it's just more of a commitment thing. It's like, you know, you say you're going to be there for your mate. He should be there. I I, I was at fault. I fully admit this, but I, I didn't Dahi hold would have been there for you. Yeah, That's and probably, probably on time. But look, we digress. Speaking of good friends, um, <laughs> Jay-Z <Nice. laughs> says that uh, a lot of his rapper mates have thanked him um, for saving their relationships after 4.44. Um, this is absolute nonsense. Was- There's no way. <laughs> Do you not think? Come I can kind of see this. I can kind of see this because like, in the hip-hop community, so many rappers are just so sycophantic around Jay-Z. We talked about him recently on the show just being like, I kind of made the claim that he might be the greatest rapper of all time, if not just for pure skills, but because of like what he means to the community and what he's done in the game. And there is a lot of this kind of kiss the ring stuff that goes on with Jay-Z. So I can kind of imagine his phone blowing up even if it's not necessarily true um he was on hbo's the shop do you remember the shop from any other big major no encore news stories dave i think drake was on it talking about yeah. pushy t perhaps and being yeah. like the chess move was genius but he went too far essentially yeah, LeBron James features, uh, if not on every episode, then quite a lot on the shop. It's this whole kind of American cultural thing as well of, I guess, the barbers being somewhere you go and spend like hours in and just chat. So it's like a chat show format. Is that an Irish thing? I don't think that's really an no, Irish thing. No, and I don't want to say anything insane here, but I do think it's part of African-American culture. I, I think it's meant to be a place. That sounds that- fair. Yeah, no, I think, I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've heard that before. But Please don't cancel me. I saw it in Seoul and I've seen it in numerous films and I believe the barbershop no, is in fact right. a I forum think, for, yeah, for, for yeah. culture we're open like. to corrections for sure but um this show is fantastic it's it's, it's thrown up gems um yeah we we got that amazing moment with drake uh opening up about the whole disc record thing and um the incredible moment where he <laughs> apologized to lebron <laughs> for not responding i was like talking about how like he was so upset that lebron might be disappointed in him and yeah that was magical anyway i would be Jay-Z, very upset if lebron james was disappointed in me it would probably ruin the rest of my life but i can can i just say meanwhile right there was like instagram videos around that time of lebron working out quite heavily to uh daytona by Pusha T. so like steady on drake all right he's he's playing both sides here anyway jay-z 
<laughs> yes, the actual story. He was talking about the record that I said I recently went back to and kind of reassessed. It's it's pretty decent. Begrudgingly uh, reassessed, Craig. Bit, I think maybe overrated, overhyped. Um, it's not. He says that, listen, a lot of rappers appreciated him kind of releasing the brutally honest response to Beyonce's Lemonade and just kind of talking about trying to save his relationship. So to quote Jay-Z, he said, to be vulnerable in that space when you've done all this work and your ego tells you that you don't have to, but then nobody else heals. So many super gangster rappers come up to me and tell me on the side, yo, you saved my relationship. It was needed. Um, He also talked about kind of opening up on that record about his relationship with his mother, which she eventually grew to appreciate. But um. Yeah, I guess, you know, billionaire rapper showing a sensitive side, being it's good also, to his family. It's, but it's, it's, it's a bit be of a positive a, thing, right? <laughs> yes and no. I think it is and it isn't. Okay. It, it, it's always good when someone comes out and says, oh man, this thing made me think differently about life and saved my relationship. Great. But, and again, like, you know, we don't think Lemonade is like the greatest album of all time or anything, but like, it's kind of like where like why didn't the guys have any kind of visceral reaction to that record they only had a visceral reaction to the record that responded to that record it's a little bit kind of you know back in your box woman you know i, I kind of feel like beyonce if anything is being a little bit a little bit thrown under the bus here you know by proxy. Well, i mean it's 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 disappointing that it would take jay-z releasing an album for them to reassess their relationships with their partners I don't precisely yeah that's yeah, what I'm, yeah it is like, it, but again it's, it's he's a big... huge role model if he's incrementally changing I don't know, just toxic masculinity. Then it's, fair it's, play to Jay Z. Yeah, I say, it's, Dave, it's toxic masculinity. But Craig, it I think is. I, I think I would rather hear about uh, offensive misogyny. Do you have anything this week on that score? Well, then- Sinead O'Connor's done an interview. And <laughs> no way. Yeah, it's uh, it didn't go so well. Um, just this had echoes of previous kind of maybe disastrous interviews uh, I don't know if you want to comment on but um, Sinead O'Connor is planning to boycott the BBC's uh, Woman's Hour after an interview uh, she found it to be as- offensive and misogynistic basically she was talking to the host Emma Barnett uh, about her new memoir um, she's been in a lot of different places recently there's some great articles out there uh, just looking at her you know what a life she's led but their chat kind of took an awkward turn. Um, Barnett mentioned that the Telegraph's music critic, uh, Neil McCormick, who we might have discussed previously on this show for some of his mm, kind of outdated views on rock and roll. Outlandish opinions, yeah. Yeah. He described uh, O'Connor as, uh, and I quote, the crazy lady in Pop's attic. Um, and yeah, this was a moment in an interview where <laughs> Emma Barnett decided to bring up this quote and put it directly to Sinead O'Connor. Your thoughts, Dave? Uh, yeah, so Craig is trying to draw a parallel here. Uh, what he's doing here is quite masterful, listener, because some listeners will be aware that I once interviewed Amanda Palmer, formerly of the Dresden Dolls and now of Amanda Palmer fame. This is back in fucking 2013, I believe. It's for State magazine. Yeah, it it's no longer online because State is no longer online. It wasn't taken down or anything. Oh, God. Long story short, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, interview could have gone better. I said a few questions in that a, a colleague of mine, the colleague being Craig, uh, said that Amanda Palmer, who was getting pilloried in the press at the time, I was like, oh, that must be really difficult. It seems like everyone hates you now. And like, again, something like that. Like, I, I've said numerous times, I'm sure people are sick of hearing it, that like I could have phrased the question more delicately, but I do think it was contextual. And yes, Craig, you are correct. When I read this news story... I did immediately flash back to that moment I had with Amanda Palmer. Um, it raises the question about raising questions. It raises the question about, is it okay to, you know, bring up something inflammatory and hide behind 
it being someone else's words, which, you know, I've clearly done. Um, should you ever bring up anything negative or any kind of criticism towards any artist? And also, is Sinead O'Connor correct in suggesting that it's misogynistic? Um, lots of questions I'm not sure I'm really fully able to answer. I will say that, like, I think Sinead O'Connor rules. I'm looking forward to reading this. This is Remembering's, her uh, memoir, which I believe... There's an audio version as well in which she narrates it. I'm curious oh, to hear awesome. that. Yeah, so yeah. that'd be really cool. Look, I think Shana Connor is fucking awesome. I wrote an article for Joe um, after she appeared on The Late Late Show a couple of years ago when she did that amazing uh, version of Nothing Compares to You and she smiled at the camera at the end and I thought I thought it was a rare, transcendent, beautiful moment on The Fucking Late Late Show. And of course, it was like was, one of those. Sorry to cut across you, but like it was one of those. Like, oh, I'm proud to be Irish. Yeah, moments. no, it was, I don't it know. Was it just genuinely, kind of everyone was overwhelmed. It was incredible, and it's it, and it's a reminder of the power she has and can yeah. have throughout her career. And it's been a very up and down career in lots of ways with her. Um, and listen, I mean, like she ain't fucking perfect. I'm sure she'd be the first to say it. It's interesting that she throws around the word misogynistic. She's every right to do so, but I do also recall her being absolutely horrific about Kim Kardashian and Miley Cyrus and saying stuff that I would consider to be misogynistic. So I think nobody's perfect, essentially, and everything is contextual. Um, she's every right to get annoyed if this is brought up to her. Neil McCormick's criticism is obviously absolute bollocks, as is so much of what he says in general. It's an unfair tag to put on anybody. I thought she handled herself very well when she was like saying... I don't think I fit this tag. I don't think I fit the Jane Eyre thing. You know, she managed to fucking very quickly intellectualize and contextualize it herself. Um, I, I would never want to run afoul of Sinead O'Connor, much like I wouldn't want to run afoul of LeBron James. Combination of respect and fear, I think. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I mean, like, I just wonder what's off limits in an interview was it okay to raise that at all? A lot of stuff, a lot of fucked up stuff has been written about her. And like I say, when I wrote that piece for Joe, I anticipated and sure enough that there'd be a lot of trolls out there in the internet giving out about her one way or the other, especially because of her appearance and her, you know, religious beliefs these days and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of woke up that Saturday morning and wanted to write a piece and I did. And I was very much just like, well, the fuck, I'm sick to death of people who just take shots at this woman who has been so laid bare good and bad over the years for she's been sport i mean we had alice kiernan on the show last week talk about olivia rodrigo and i thought alice made an incredible point when she said that olivia rodrigo is perhaps our get out of jail free card now or our redemption maybe a, a new path can be forged in how we talk about female artists and you know not just carving them up for sport i think shana connor predates a lot of that kind of stuff she wasn't a teen pop star but she was incredibly young when she became a star and I think she was mistreated by the media globally. And now there absolutely is a reclamation project as far as she is concerned. You mentioned some of the articles that have followed this release of this new memoir. There's a particularly great one in the New York Times, I believe. And mm. I think ultimately when Shane O'Connor has stuff to say, it's worth listening to her. But, I've, but I'm also very aware that I've seen people, whether it's people on Twitter or critics, when she's having a bad moment and she takes to social media, as she has done quite often, and I've seen people just fucking throw her to the wolves and be absolutely disgraceful about her. And like I say, she ain't perfect. Not at all. But I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's a tough one. I think Shane O'Connor, I think it's great <coughs> that she's having this moment and that people are kind of lining up to give her her flowers and everything. But I, I, I don't necessarily fully agree with her reaction here. But also... That's my read on her reaction. Her reaction is valid and what she had to say supersedes anything I have to say about it, basically. Yeah, I agree. Her reaction is um, is her reaction. And, you know, 
it's coming from a person, as you say, that over the years has had to deal with so much shit that like even, you know, she when she was kind of saying what she she was saying it was one abusive and invalidating question or statement after another that's the way she felt and i guess if you put up with that for years maybe even the slightest thing is enough to just bring it all back and you can quite rightly be like you know what i'm fucking done with all of this which is totally fine by the same token um and the bbc released a statement just saying you know during the interview um talking about the new book she was asked to talk about her mental health and was asked um what she made of a comment by a music critic reviewing her book in recent days so i it kind of feels like journalistically fair game to me in terms of like it was about this kind of publicity cycle it was about the book in question it was about how she was perceived it feels like it's on on the table but i guess you need to approach those things with sensitivity and of course as a journalist you always have to expect the interviewee to take it how they take it and i'm sure they'll understand that's just part and parcel of the game right yeah, I think so. And lastly, I guess on Shane O'Connor as well. And like I say, I mean, like an interesting artist, there's been so much conflict, whether on or off record over the year, like like on, like on, like on or off her music, I mean, not on the record over the years with her. But I do think that like, you know, we live in a time where we're always looking for superstars, we're always looking for, you know, kind of the greats, etc. And I wonder if, you know, Shane O'Connor is regarded as one of the greats. I think she probably should be. I think we have this person in our lifetime from our country and I would hope that the kind of cycle of respect is moving back towards her now. It seems like it is. Uh, and listen, I mean, like I say, I mean, like, ultimately, I think she's on that level where it's like, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, you know, I like, if you're listening to the podcast, because you, you want to hear what Craig and I have to say, but like, not to invalidate anybody, especially myself, but like, fuck what I think. Shane O'Connor is on a different level. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't criticize the woman. She's, she's too fucking cool, man. She's done so much and she continues to. I must read that book. I really, really want to. Yeah. Dave, can you criticise Justin Timberlake? He's have taken a few done shots often in recent years. and will yeah. continue to. What's he done now? Well, <laughs> you're in good company. Swizz Beats has uh, fired a few shots at JT. Uh, he was on that Versus show. I don't know if you've seen much of it. It's a pretty cool concept. Uh, again, a kind of another show rooted in hip-hop culture. It's basically two artists, uh, be they rappers or producers, just kind of facing off in kind of friendly competition, playing their big hits, either rapping along with them or just having a kind of karaoke session and having a bit of a chat as well. Swizz Beats was versus Timbaland uh, this past week in a kind of DJ battle to incredible, incredible talents. So just kind of like the hits kept coming. Uh, but of course, it being Timbaland, some of those hits included Cry Me River, Sexy Back and Swizz kind of hip back at that point during it. He basically kind of said playfully, like, until you can get Justin Timberlake on versus, I don't, I don't really want to hear those vocals. And he continued later kind of saying, uh, until Justin lets the world know uh, that he kind of supports black culture and he's going to be on this stage, he doesn't want to hear it. Um, which is, you know, charges have been leveled against Justin Timberlake Um but aside from all the kind of Britney um, discussion in recent times about him kind of maybe co-opting hip hop and that culture and using it as platform after he, you know, escaped NSYNC um, and kind of found credibility and legitimacy and kind of huge commercial success in that field and then went off to the woods <laughs> and decided he was just that Midwestern white boy after all. Uh, it's an interesting conversation. Tim Lands is clearly still uh, on board with Justin Timberlake and... Later on in a different live stream, I think it was the live stream with Hip Hop and More, um, he said that Beats had gone a little too hard on Justin. Uh, 
he went too hard basically said yeah kind of lay off slightly he doesn't have a problem with him Beats kind of came out and said listen um, he's also fine with Justin Timberlake but just a few things need clarification this isn't really going away for him though is it what's it going to take do you reckon an uh, apology, a kind of notes statement, or him. I think I think I he's going to put um, money where his mouth is and produce some music that actually plays. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I think making an actual good album again would be a yeah, good first yeah. step to you know rehabilitation <laughs> for Justin Timberlake. And listen, I've nothing against him really. Uh, I will say that like I think Swizz Beats is probably spot on here. Um, I don't think like the charges are are so like you know aggressive against him. I think they're very much just like. You know, it was in the context of a rap battle and I think Swizzbees even said he was like, look, you know, you were going hard with the tunes. I had to come back with something pretty good. And he's not wrong. I mean, like Justin Timberlake has made the best music of his career when he was leaning into slash pilfering from hip hop. And whether that meant working with the best producers and featured artists or whatever, ultimately, like his highest career apex in the mid to late 2000s was completely backed by hip hop sounds. And, you know, I've no problem with like, a fucking white guy coming from a boy band getting involved in it if if the music is uh, I was going to say justified there we go but <laughs> it, I think it was I, I think he was a very good transitional pop superstar coming out of one thing into another he wore it well but yeah for sure like I mean like it can absolutely be held up against him that like well this was you know you, you you've come into a world that you didn't grow up in and you know he did a pretty good job, but like acknowledge it, which I'm sure he has, I guess. I don't know. He's acknowledged it musically. I think the other major problem um, has been that people see him as not being sufficiently kind of outspoken in terms of, you know, black matters and the horrendous stuff that's been going on. I was going to say in recent years, but like, you know, throughout American history, but it's really intensified in the last couple of years. And he wasn't using his platform kind of sufficiently to speak to that and just kind of doing very perfunctory kind of, you know, Peace and love, man, type stuff um, when he really could actually make a difference as a person that bridges that gap. Like, you know, when he when he first kind of blew up in solo terms, there was a lot of talk about how he was, you know, maybe a modern day Elvis or kind of like really bringing those cultures together. And Elvis was <laughs> no great shakes in that regard either. And um, Justin has plenty to do. I'm sure he'll make amends. He's a pretty savvy dude, right? Yeah, and as we say, like, maybe not, maybe not, yeah, maybe top of the list should be, like, actually, you know, using his platform for for good, maybe doing some good activism, but do please get a good album in there, because it has been quite some time. Uh, And that brings a heated news section to an end. That was uh, a lot in there, you know, a lot of stuff going on. um, Let's take take a breather uh, with a plug for the Headstuff Podcast Network. Subland Podcast is basically Suzanne Kane and PJ Gallagher. It is a podcast that is designed very much look at the negative side of things and tell you that it is okay to get up in the morning and live your day. Suzanne Kane, slightly crazy conservative lady and ultra-liberal lunatic headcase me, PJ Gallagher, doing our best to put a smile on your face. It's a midlife, it is literally a midlife crisis podcast. Start from next week, we'll have 10-15 minutes of extra bonus material that will be on the podcast every single week, which will be very focused instead of this usual sort of demented ranting. Excuse me. And you can sign up together on headstuffpodcast.com where you'll find loads of other brilliant podcasts with, with all brilliant topics. Material, and apparently. loads of great bonus material that isn't us, but stick with us too. Thank you. 
It's the midpoint of the show, and you know what that means. It's time for an album review. That's how it works. It's time to talk about a band that may or may not have inspired our upcoming top five overhyped acts. It's Black Midi. They're back with their sophomore record. Let's see if they've had the difficult second album problem on Cavalcade. This song is called John L. The God of his song rips strong into frenzy, and the echoes of his crooning now cease to be heard. No longer pale brunettes are broken in two and thrown to the snouts of the antidote crew. John 50 is intolerant, his soapbox usurped, his bone robe adorns the tree stumps of the earth. No half of an army will last long before he breeds men who yearn for their own bloody glory. Goodness me, that's Black Midi. The song is John L. L in this case being the Roman numeral for 50, so maybe I should be calling it John 50. Who knows? But that's Black Midi. That's the vibe. And before we get into Craig's primer, some further listener correspondence, which also came our way this week via patreon.com slash noencore when I posted the episode preview. This is from listener Philip Donegan, who said, I saw Black Midi at All Together Now in 2019. It had the air of an elaborate prank. Easily the worst performance I've seen in the flesh. Best part was, and I do not say this lightly, when the guitarist played the riff from Can't Stop by the Red Hot Chili Peppers in amongst their incomprehensible rubbish. And now, to tell us more about this band, comprehensible or otherwise, it's the always comprehensive Craig Fitzpatrick. What an intro. Black (laughs) Midi then. Could have kept going. (laughs) Black Midi. Where do we even start with Black Midi? They're kind of like achingly hip London act right um, they're named for a Japanese genre that they don't actually play uh, it didn't feature in our weird subgenres um, discussion some time back you can check that out on Spotify if you want but it's apparently it's basically like using MIDI files to create songs that have thousands of notes and the musical score like appears totally black Any, anyway they don't play that but they have a similar kind of um, approach to music where it's just very maximalist it's very clever clever um, challenging sometimes for the sake of being challenging music making um they come or at least some of them do from the brit school i believe um which is a sticking point for a lot of people um perhaps unfairly but you know the brit school does kind of immediately conjure up um a sound of like unwarranted grants on top of kind of like old money trust funds and i think black midi sometimes sound a bit like that like there's a kind of escapist uh verve to their music that screams like i'm never gonna have to get a real job which is maybe no bad thing but they turned up kind of um seeming like a bit of a not a gimmick but there was a lot of talk around their live shows how it was all improv um very jazz influenced they didn't release um much for a long time and you're kind of relying on snatches of live stuff online there was a kexp uh session um the seattle radio station which does great stuff that just kind of took off became hugely popular on youtube um quite a kind of yeah eccentric performance i guess uh lots and lots of improv and it got the hype levels up. I did like that kind of approach, I must say, to begin with, where it's just like, we're not going to release anything out of the gates. There's kind of like this, um, this enforced kind of scarcity around what we're doing. And they got the hype um, beast purring along. Uh, Schlagenheim then arrived, which was nominated for the Mercury Prize. It was then working with Dan Carey, who also worked on Doggerel, um, Fontaine's DC uh, debut, which was up for it as well. He was having a great time with it. And yeah, I didn't spend too much time with it. It was a lot of improv, post-rock, um, jazz-inflected stuff. The story with Cavalcade is that they've 
ditched some of the improv um so it's not so much about um just doing whatever comes to the top of her head it was like writing sessions based around jam sessions uh kind of band leader and guitarist uh geordie greep has said that like people seem to really like the debut album but after a while we all became pretty bored with it so it was like this time let's make something that is actually good so this is kind of classic <laughs> a novel MIDI, a novel know? concept so, yeah. <laughs> yeah fucking hell they're very um there's a lot of um studied frivolousness to this band i think so they're abandoning the jam they're embracing melody uh they filmed to ireland as well hellfire studios um they're working with spud murphy i believe and yeah that is the approach here how did you get on with it dave uh wow the, the, there's a heavy portentous sigh there i should also note that they're they're down a member on this record as well i believe one of them has they taken are, time off for has taken time off due to mental health issues yeah, yeah so he doesn't feature on this and, and he's still listed as a member best. yeah absolutely yeah, totally. still listed as a member of the band which is cool i mean it's it, it's great that any band is able to kind of provide a support network and essentially give someone the season off um I mean, Schlagenheim, the first album, I don't even know if I listened to that more than once because I remember just listening to it and being like, this is bollocks. Uh, I, I get <laughs> that people are into it. And look, you're talking to someone who's obsessed with bands like Woo Life and Converge. So I don't, you know, like music can be unpretty and it can be completely experimental. And I, I think that these guys are referred to as avant rock amongst other, you know, very kind of made up slapdash, uh, hogwash yeah. and balderdash tags, you might say. Uh, essentially, that's very pack any of me there, wasn't it? Tags, you might say. Um, Black Midi. So essentially, I think when I first heard this record and when I first heard the first track, I very much kind of looked to the heavens and was like, oh, fuck. I was like, I have to spend a week with this. This is going to be a fucking nightmare. And the first listen of this record was very tough, as you might expect, because their band I just don't get. Um, Over the course of the week, it it did unlock for me. And it actually unlocked kind of quickly. The second listen was... Like, going back for that second listen was like, I don't know, it was like, maybe like going back to an ex-girlfriend or something who you're like, this isn't going to work, but I have to keep doing it. It was just like, I'm going to get hurt. Uh, and yet, I was like, wait a minute, this is actually kind of good. I was like, this, some of these songs are actually really, really good. Uh, I think that there's some very good stuff on here. I didn't enjoy it, though, I don't think, <laughs> is how I would kind of parse that. Before we kind of drill down further, let me just ask you a basic question. Is this a load of bollocks? Um, I don't think it's a load of bollocks, no. And yeah, I do appreciate I, I having listened to the first album. Um, sporadically, I had that thing of just like, well, listen, I, I like to be challenged. I'm willing to kind of let this wash over me and try and get it. And it was background noise. And I just, I was like, okay, that's enough of that. With this, there's enough going on. And there's enough kind of, there's large tracks of this album where I'm like, I really like what they're doing here. And you can't deny that they're a talented, talented bunch of players, right? Well, no. I mean, like some of the actual musicianship here is genuinely overwhelming. And Outstanding, yeah. They will add stuff as well in the middle of a song that sounds like a roller coaster horror thing starting up out of nowhere, and it's so intricate and precise. It's beautiful, um, but it is like it's it's in that bracket for me of admire rather than enjoy. Which, again, is more than I thought I was going to get from this. I knew I was going to get something incredibly obtuse, and it is that. But there's definitely songs here. <laughs> like, there's definitely narratives here. Like, the opening track is amazing. Like, the more you listen to it, like, it's completely insane. But, like, it tells a, a, a really, really cool story. And 
it kind of works and even the video has kind of like this kind of cult-like imagery which makes a lot of sense and kind of works there's even like almost like something akin to a dance routine in there but it works i think the, the kind of the modern art thing works i think a track like uh, diamond stuff which arrives kind of at the midpoint is absolutely amazing uh, it's reminiscent of nine inch nails ghosts kind of stuff which of course fed into of all things little nas x's old town road that kind of just very stark finger picking guitar kind of stuff which just sounds like it evokes very kind of nighttime imagery very nocturnal kind of wanderings and it's beautifully beautifully done even the closing track which is like a 10 minute kind of feels like some kind of in joke that maybe only 10 people would get has absolute shimmering epic cinematic scope to it it's an album that i thought i was going to fucking hate and i think i almost wanted to and then the more i heard it the more i was like no this is actually really 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 good it just still isn't for me, but it isn't for me in the sense that I'm like, I, I, I kind of get them now a little bit. I get what they're about and I appreciate it. But again, I don't know if I'll go back and listen to this ever again, even though I think it is a good album, which is weird, right? Yeah, it definitely shifted my perceptions of this band. Uh, it's a, It was a strange one. Uh, it was a, a lot of the listens were kind of prickly experiences. Um, I think they're as I say, highly talented. They're a good band with like plenty of bad ideas <laughs> to my taste. Um, but maybe that's kind of less of a pose than other sculpted band because they're just like, maybe we're kind of punishing them for taking risks. They're like literally just being like letting it all hang out and just really pushing the envelope in terms of their art. And a lot of that is quite ugly. Um, the first song and the lead single, did I did not jive with that whatsoever, Dave. Uh, so it's interesting to hear. I can totally see why people would get into it, but... Um, well, what do you think of the... Um, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but what, what do you think of the vocals in general, and particularly on that That track, is the major problem yeah. <laughs> I have. Okay. Grief's vocals. For, right from the kind of roll doors, on early doors, I'm like, whatever this effect is... Uh, and it sounds to me like it's a kind of... Irish. country irish yeah. accent which immediately it was like something you hear down a she bean back in the 1800s or something yeah maybe he needs um, to apologize for cultural appropriation is he irish <laughs> yeah i don't like, know if it's the hellfire thing no he's not irish i, I don't believe um but it's very uh, yeah like the kind of the lyrics of like there's no escape from this infernal din it's very vaudeville it's very 18th century it kind of made me itchy it was like is this just some kind of theater production from a bunch of like absolute pains in the neck do you know what I mean? Well, it and is. And it was a, yeah, it is. And it, that opening was a flip side to like, la, you know, last week with Olivia Rodriguez, where, um, and we've had a good dose of that recently where albums are quite front loaded, but I haven't been so put off by an intro in a long, long time. Um, wow. Okay. That, that was my initial reaction to it, genuinely. Like when I heard it last Friday, I was just like, fuck. You know, that's when I was like, oh, Jesus, this is going to be tough, 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 tough work. But honestly, that track has significantly grown on me. It was kind of the bookends of of the record. I, there's a lot to admire in the closing track, I think. But um, I was I, in the middle of it. I was having a perfectly nice time until maybe dethroned, where he enters this kind of sub Scott Walker impression thing, where it's just like we're back to songs written, you know, hogwash and balderdash. You know, songs written as if he's hanging out with like a medieval tavern owner or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> It's just, it reminds me so much of, um, you know, my dad could be uh, prone to like a lot of prog rock back in the day. Like I, I remember as a kid being subjected to like Yes's Tales from Topographic Oceans. It's like a fucking triple album just about like detailing the four bodies of the, of Hindu texts and stuff. 
turn out? This is the kind of music that, like, if punk didn't exist, punk would have to be invented right now to combat it. Do you know what I mean? Um, but but a lot of the kind of interior of the album um, from, like, Marlene Dietrich on is quite great. Like, when they do subtle very well when they want to. Um, there's some great smooth uh, stuff going on here. At times, I was thinking of, like, even Wild Beasts, you know, circa kind of limbo panto. Um there's, you know, when he's not um, doing the Irish accent, there's kind of flecks of Hayden Torp. I think some of their simplest ideas are their best ones. And yeah, um, for sure, Diamond Stuff um, and the lead in Slow, the prior song, which is kind of like this great kind of trail ride where it's like a drinks trolley going off a tre- precipice or something. That worked really well for me. Um, so yeah, there's definite quality here. I and mean, they ease up on... Being a bunch sorry, of absolute sorry, sorry, tryhards. I'm sorry. I, I've been trying to hold this in. Medieval tavern owner has fucking destroyed. <laughs> fucking ruined me. Oh my god, I'm gone. I actually, I can't. I can't even continue the review. I, I've been completely thrown off. Abs- like it's um, just too much because the, well, let, the imagery yeah, conjures up. I can just yeah. I can, I, I, it's 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 absolutely perfect. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, like, a lot of this kind of jazzy stuff, to me, it doesn't quite work. I'm gone. I'm fucking I'm gone. Like, right. I, I just, I, I, I this can't. This is a 7 out of 10 for me, right? I and I think, I think they might have a career if they stop messing around. But, um, oh, man. I'm done. Yeah, no, it's a 7.5 for me. I, I honestly do think that, like, there's something here. Uh, there's some weird witchiness going on. It is simultaneously absolutely pretentious as fuck. They clearly, clearly love themselves and think they're amazing. And maybe they are. They're doing something different. Like, you know, it's... I'm glad they exist. I will say that. Yeah. and But it's... Are you, though? I mean... Well, maybe I would have had a better week if I didn't have to subject myself to fucking John 50 for, you know. It's also... It's really not... It's not It's not music for hot weather. Like, absolutely not. No, no. Jesus. This is not the season for it whatsoever. <laughs> um... Autumnal strolls, maybe I could get on board with this. Yeah, I mean, unless they're like coming you know, into Halloween. <laughs> uh, like, I, I guess I could see it being played at some kind of you know remote British summer festival in which a man is put into a giant wicker man and yeah. burned alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is totally. that kind of stuff. Seven point five, Black Midi. Well done. You did it. I guess. I don't know if I'll go back. I probably will. I could see it cropping up at the end of the year on our albums of the year discussion list, but we'll see. Hopefully, I can keep my mirth at bay. Fuck me. I swear to God. The medieval tavern owner thing, I've, I've, just, I've never seen more appropriate imagery for a thing. It's just because <laughs> I could hear John 50 playing in my head simultaneously and I was just like, that's it. My brain is completely fucked. It's over. Well, mission accomplished for them. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're creating art, if you can conjure up such a kind of definitive image with your music, mission accomplished. Right. Um, well, let's talk about some acts that certainly had, I, I guess, image will probably play a part. It plays a part with every act, really. Our top five this week concerns acts that, for us, I think, just didn't quite live up to the hype. Essentially, yeah. this is a tricky one because like, we've done we've done top five most overrated albums, and that's something I'd actually love to revisit soon. Um, for sure. We haven't I think done, they're quite different. Yeah, well, we haven't done... This isn't even overrated artists. We're doing overhyped acts. So, Craig, can you please explain the difference? So overrated albums was a real, um, it was, you know, it was the sacred cows, wasn't it? It was the albums that are still hugely critically acclaimed, uh, universally adored. And um, it was me going in two-footed on Marvin Gaye, essentially. 
I love how that's come out to haunt you so often. Like, there's just a new accolade for that album every other week. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much week on week since that episode came out. Um, but I maintain that in the long term, <laughs> my opinion will stand and as what's going on fades into the sands of time. <laughs> um, but overhyped is more like, okay, the jig was up quite quickly. There was lots of early promise. I will say it, it can be, be maybe founded on something substantial or just be a pure kind of um, press fabrication. But like, um, you know, the balloon was burst within an album. Um, maybe the album didn't even come out. We'll see. But just those acts where you just go, what was all that about? They were supposed to be the next big thing and they fizzled out. That's what we're dealing with here. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I had a very long list of this, which I whittled down to five. And even then, it was kind of tricky enough. But like, I think in the case of certainly the acts I've picked, it's not necessarily about like, you know, rubbing anyone's noses in it or being, you know, cruel. It's just more a case of just, as Craig says, kind of bafflement and just being like, this to me was a moment that just didn't quite, you know, the switches just didn't quite come on. So uh, why don't you go first this week? Okay. Um, Maybe to reinforce your point there, this is actually, we're going to open with someone that did have, like there's stuff to recommend from this person's opening gambit. Um, They're a New Yorker, prog soul singer um but back in the day they were going to be the next prince there may be the proto d'angelo and you just ended up nowhere near either if you've even heard of them so here's my number five Yeah, Sign Your Name, which is a pretty nice tune. That's a great uh, Terrence, song. Yeah, Terence Trent Darby. Where is he now? Well, he's he's had a name change and he doesn't really feature too much anymore. But um, yeah, back in the late 80s, this guy was going to be the next big everything. And this is like a classic case of, yes, there was lots of press attention, but it was his own hubris, really. And then some weird kind of um, career moves thereafter that put paid to his career, essentially. Introducing the Hardline, according to Terence Trent Darby, was his debut album. And it was a massive hit. <laughs> like it was it entered the charts in number one in the uk it even did well in the us um and things seem to be you know all the reference points were there um you know james brown sam cook mj marvin gay um now he hasn't even really had the career of a, a lenny kravitz it just seems like a bit of a fever dream but a lot of this was down to him talking a big talk and <laughs> What will feature, I think, quite a lot in certainly my list is just the difference between maybe the the US um, music press and the press in England, um, where there is this kind of culture in the UK, probably stemming from, for decades, the enemy just trying to sell tens thousands of copies every week where it's all about the hype it's all about like bigging yourself up no noly g was a master at it you know it just works there uh so when terence Trent darby got to england he decided this was the way to go in all his press interviews he was a charismatic dude he had a kind of high opinion of himself and he quickly realized that a lot of what he told the english press was coming back to bite him in america 
So as far back as 1988, he was telling the Washington Post, you've got to realise that I said a lot of outrageous things in England. Uh, a lot of it was what I truly believe, but a lot of it was exaggerated to make a point. Uh, you have to hit people over the head to make them notice. And I did it. Uh, I know how to play the game. But now I'm worried that a lot of people in America think I'm some kind of hype because all of that was written in England. And I'm very ser- serious about my music and my career. I don't want to just be the latest curiosity. So he essentially compared himself um, to the likes of the Beatles. He said the debut album was right up there with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which wow. is one of my o- most overrated <laughs> albums of all time. I think it was number one, actually. It was. Maybe it was, yeah, it was number one. <laughs> and yeah, a backlash was quickly brewing. So he made the cover of Rolling Stone, but the headline said, a legend in his own mind. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. So he was pegged as like this egotist kind of one hit wonder in the States. And then he just like compounded it with his his next couple of records. So neither Fish nor Flesh arrived in 1989 and it was like a psychedelic album. And people were like, what are you doing? Like, this is just bizarre. Uh, 1993, then we got Symphony or Dam, uh, which was like guitar rock. And at that stage, the commercial appeal was kind of zilch. Um by the 2000s I think he'd legally changed his name um, and he said he'd had a lot of kind of psychological problems dealing with it he felt like he was going to join the 27 club and he just kind of went away from the spotlight but yeah just it's amazing how quickly it kind of bloomed and then just nothing I mean people might know the name I think if you ask the man in the street they would not remember Terence Trent Darby really I mean like it's a very uh, for lack of a better word iconic name like like it's kind of I think it's a great name. I think maybe it's it's synonymous with, yeah, it's synonymous with that kind of like, he feels like a kind of trivia question maybe. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'm being harsh on him. No, I don't think you're being harsh necessarily. And obviously to be fair, yeah, look, listen, I mean like a lot of, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about will involve acts that may very well have been victims of the fucking industry and like you know deserve empathy for sure um but yeah there is an element terence Trent Darby, like it's all it's, it's almost like a like he was like a, a footballer signed for a fucking 50 million pounds and you know it just didn't work you know there's just Great something analogy, there where yeah. it didn't quite it just didn't quite click even though all the like all the tools were there um sign your name's a banger you know give him that it's an amazing oh, song yeah. i mean i would recommend that debut and i do think like you know if you arrived nowadays um social media and his kind of oversized personality at the time i think that he like he's probably better built for these times in terms of like he was determinedly independent i can imagine him kind of amassing a kind of fierce standum and being the kind of artist that could just kind of take weird kind of artistic left turns and be acclaimed for it maybe be a kind of frank ocean type but this was you know, Reagan's 80s. <laughs> yeah, so. and I will say as well that, like, I mean, it, it speaks to, a lot of this speaks to different times. It, even the idea of, like, doing one interview in one part of the world and then trying to reframe it somewhere else is just, like, yeah, it's unfathomable madness. today, especially. But, like, that headline, Legend in His Own Mind, is one of, that's an execution. Like, that is complete and utter, like, they killed him with that. That's yeah, fucking unbelievable. 100%, yeah. Right, uh, number five for me in the overhyped Axe Corner. Uh, this is always my go-to, like, pretty much any time, like, as a gag. And I'll explain why after you hear a bit of this. Yeah. 
The song is called Emerge, and the act are Fisher Spooner, Electro Clash yeah, duo, feature. formed in 1998 in New York City. Uh, Warren Fisher, Casey Spooner, Fisher Spooner. When that track first started playing, Craig had a little knowing laugh to himself there for a second. Are you on board? Yeah, great choice. Um, <laughs> just hearing that, it's so Nathan Barley. But again, like <laughs> these guys, I think... They had to be in a few years later. I they think would so. have been hanging out with the DFA lads. Like, <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's talk about that. I, I, I read like a really long interview that they did with Pitchfork in 2005, and they mentioned DFA and all that kind of stuff, and like being part of this scene, that scene, whatever. Um, like, they're a weird act. I, I, they're an act that I just kept seeing every time I'd open NME. You know, in I want to say 2008 or something, there would just be an article yeah. about Fisher Spooner and like a photograph of them looking outrageous at some kind of experimental show. Um, there's one of the reasons that they've been my go-to on on a hype act for so long is uh paddy hannah actually so paddy hannah who of course is previously a guest of this show a few times mm. do check out his most recent album the hill and our track by track episode which came out in september i believe or october um paddy used to be in grand pocket orchestra back in the day and i interviewed him back in the hot press days so it would have been 2011 or so so literally a fucking decade ago and we were in the exchequer bar and i was chatting to him and they were talking about getting label interest and how, like, there was UK labels kind of circling the band, circling Grand Pocket Orchestra. And apparently Paddy Hanna had, like, meetings with these people. And it was, if, judging by the way, his description of it was kind of everything that you think it would be, just, like, hipster places and cool people and all that kind of stuff. And apparently, I guess one label was, like, trying to get Paddy to impress them and was like, I mean, listen, guys, yeah, you're good and all, but we've got Fisher Spooner on our label. <laughs> and it was just even, even like, I'll never forget Paddy's derisive italic emphasis on the word Fisher Spooner. And I was like, yeah, of course, that's what they are to me. They're barely a thing. I mean, like to me, right. <clears throat> they're like the American Electro Clash version of Jolene and the Jing Jang Jong. Like, you know how there are films that exist and have been released and have had advertising campaigns and even award attention. And yet they live in this really strange hermetically sealed prison to the point that they're a genre unto themselves, like films that don't exist. Like, for example, if you think about, like, anything Glenn Close has done to unsuccessfully try and win an Oscar in the last 10 years, like Albert Nobbs, The Wife, Hillbilly Elegy, you know, like, or if you want to, like, go mainstream, like, instantly forgettable Colin Farrell vehicles, like The Recruit, or Hearts War, (laughs) Solace, you know, or one of my personal favourites of this kind of weird death dream genre, Craig, August Osage County. Do you remember August Osage County, Craig? Do you remember there was queues around the corner of cinemas up and down the country for weeks on end? But you don't, though. That's the thing. It's it's this weird kind of. It's like a suggestive thing. They exist, yet they do not exist, and that's Fisher Spooner to me. Yeah. I think there's also a sliding doors thing going on where it's like, you know, it ended up being the strokes, but it could have been Fisher Spooner. There is that reality. There was a weird <laughs> um, in this one. There was a weird like Michael Stipe kind of sponsored comeback in around 2017, 2018 briefly, and there was like one kind of final album and then just again have disappeared. But I guess probably are massive to certain people and to to certain parts of the world and like scenes that we don't know about and but I just never got it. And it was kind of like, yeah. they were kind of lumped in like with, with like acts like the presets and just like this kind of electro movement of like the late 2000s. And I, I just didn't, it just never quite worked for me. And it just seemed to be almost a running gag that they would just pop up an enemy every week and then never do anything of substance. Yeah, the, the music did nothing for me, but I did appreciate the kind of like the, you know, the live shows and they're going for the whole Roxy music dress up thing at a time when 
music was kind of boring and acts weren't making a lot of an effort um but yeah it didn't pay off for them okay my number four and we're going back to the 1960s dave excellent Yeah, that was Moby Grape with Fall On You from their self-titled 1967 album. Uh, I'm just going to read you a short passage here from a Rob Hughes' article that goes, April 1968, somewhere in New York City, Alexander Skip Spence, mercurial genius of San Francisco five-piece Moby Grape, has flipped. Sweating like a madman, his hair is tufted at wild angles, his once trimmed beard looks for all the world like it's just been savaged by a hatchet. He's just ripped chunks from the door of bandmate Don Stevenson's room back at the Albert Hotel, where the porter is left gibbering about a crazy man wielding an axe. Steeped in LSD and the occult, the man believes Stevenson and fellow grape Jerry Miller are evil and must be destroyed. In truth, the damage was already done for Moby Grape. This is kind of how the story culminated for these guys who were American Rock's kind of next great hopes. Um, I think there was there was five of them. They could all write. They could all play. They were all they all came from other talented bands, and they came to the West Coast in San Francisco, and they were doing something a bit different to the kind of psychedelic acts at the time. They were kind of just like, as you heard, they're quite energized rock and roll, um, better than the Doors, you might say. But um, things went sour for them really, really quickly. Um, they were hugely hyped. They were uh, Big Brother Sam Andrew was like, these guys are better than the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> recurring theme they had, I love it yeah <laughs> the likes of Neil Young were like championing them at the time um, Buffalo Springfield were kind of alternating sets with them this was all before the album came out and so they didn't really need like labels going overboard uh, they seemed like a sure thing um, but they were just hyped to hell um, and June 67 uh, CBS threw this kind of outrageous press junket to launch the album Basically, they like flew in journalists from all over uh, the states to kind of witness this next big thing. And um, one guy, he was there, recalls, uh, he was saying, I remember parking the Porsche, walking in, and there were two people at the door who handed you a five singles box set and a bottle of wine with Moby Grape on the label. There were millions of purple orchids flying from the ceiling. They were all over the floor. And whoever set this up as well forgot corkscrews for the 700 bottles of wine they labeled (laughs) specifically for this. And this singles box, I think, this was like part of the fiasco where CBS were so convinced that Moby Grape were going to be massive that they simultaneously released five 45s. And (laughs) they just kind of like... they released um, this pack in a kind of purple velvet press and it said that like the label is convinced that each of these 10 sides has the potential to make it to the top of the national charts. There was also a Moby Grape manual issue to sales from promotion executives and radio stations were just like baffled um, by this boy. They didn't know which singles they were supposed to play. Uh, the whole thing just didn't make any sense. Um, and... They got no airplay. <laughs> a backlash started kind of immediately. Um, things fell apart. It turned out that the deal they struck with the label, shockingly in the 60s, didn't really favour them. And um, 
basically the label sent him to New York directly after this album came out. It was like, we need to recoup our costs. This is an absolute disaster. Make the next album. It was a disastrous call um, because the bands just doubled down on like the partying. And as we kind of, you know, as I was pointed, pointing out there at the top of the story, Skip Spence, um, who had mental health problems kind of to begin with, just the combination of the 60s, the LSD, he just went off the rails. It's a really, really sad story, but yeah, he attacked his bandmates. Things got really violent. And he ended up as a kind of vagrant around San Francisco. He released one album, Or, which has some beautiful stuff on it. And he was, you know, a beautiful soul underneath it all, it would seem like, but he just kind of drifted off and the whole band drifted off. And that was the end of the Moby Grape story. Um, but it's it's worth reading that full article because, you know, there was like white witches circling the band. There was a lot of stuff going down. It got very, mar- or it got Charlie Manson. It was just Grim City, dude. Well, look, fair play to them for at least attempting some form of very early proto, I guess, uh, disruptive viral marketing that didn't quite play <laughs> off. But, you know, ahead of their time, you know, that's where you want to be. Okay, continuing overhyped acts. And now my selection. Let's go. Why, yes, it is, of course, Pumped Up Kicks, which can only mean that it's Foster the People, and that's my number four. Craig, what's your number three? (laughs) Are we really doing that? We're really doing that. Fuck them. Okay. Um, My number three. Okay, Britpop as a genre and a movement was hugely overhyped, I think, in fairness. Cool Britannia was a bit of a nightmare. I think there was a handful of bands worth saving. These weren't one of them. menswear (laughs) with daydreamer um you could have been mistaken for thinking it was wire a far far superior band because it's just a complete uh rip off and menswear were Britpop's very own boy band essentially they had you know the attitude to straddle the face and loaded magazines simultaneously and tunes to make you reach for the off switch and you know pilfered shamelessly from other bands um, which kind of, I think Elastica did, but they were actually really, really good. And I think that debut Elastica albums were checking out. But menswear were just like, they were getting coverage in <laughs> in the likes of The Enemy and Select before they even existed, <laughs> which is incredible. Um, yeah, I think it was a Select article. <laughs> yeah, there was a Select article about a supposed London mod revival led by Graham Coxon, the outgoing member of Blur, apparently, and two individuals closely associated with the burgeoning Britpop scene, Chris Gentry and Johnny Dean, made references to a top new unsigned band, um, which was menswear. It didn't exist yet. And they were on the cover of Melody Maker before they released anything. (laughs) It's incredible. I love this. They're so fascinatingly stupid. It's brilliant. Yeah, there was a frantic race then um, from the record companies to sign them. Um, 
they signed a, like a half a million publishing deal despite the fact they only had seven songs in the repertoire so they were <laughs> they made 70 grand <laughs> for song, which is just incredible and they were on top of the pops a week before the first single was released <laughs> and as i say the music was not good whatsoever um Matt Everett, who I believe was the drummer, he left really, really quickly. And uh, Johnny Dean was like, yeah, that was, that was, you know, the turning point. He was the sensible one in the group. And he's actually gone on, he, he kind of works with Six Music. He's uh, a bit of a music journal now. He seems like a nice chap. And he's the kind of guy that's like, what were we thinking with menswear? They were a dreadful, dreadful band. And he's right. Yeah. <laughs> and this is just, yeah, Britpop was so big that stuff like this could happen. They're kind of like an immaculate conception. The scene itself just birthed them into being. The front cover of Melody Maker when you haven't released a single piece of music is, is just incredible. Um, That's like, like frame that every day of the week. It's interesting because like, I feel like they're on my long list. I knew I, I had a strong, strong feeling that you'd pick them and I'm glad you did because I didn't. So this list yeah. would be poorer for not having them. Um... I've seen some people kind of like like throw like oh, the 1975 or the new menswear around, which I don't necessarily fully That's agree with. Very harsh, yeah. <laughs> but like, I guess they were they were a zeitgeist moment, right? But it did feel. I mean, what's the gag, right? If you're like a journalist and you're like putting this band on the front cover, haven't done anything, and I get it, you know, like it's like, it's like the scene from the movie where the band are so so hype that like. This is it's the guy the race but actually to be, to be the person that's like I called it. Do you know what I mean? I think it's that thing of like, well, all the ingredients are there. They look, they look like they're a boy band. Do you know what I mean? They're all just handsome, chiselled dudes in suits that have songs that sound a bit like Elastica and Wire. Do you know what I mean? Um, what do you make of the music? It's, like, it's I, I actually I, I I shuffled through some of their YouTube videos and. Outside of this, they're just so bland and beige and nondescript. They're kind of irritating as well. They're kind of trying to do a facsimile of some of the... It's just such a hodgepodge of the better, like, more original characters on the Britpop scene that you're just left with this weird, uncanny valley sound. Do you know what I mean? Um, There was was also a four CD box set released last year called Menswear Collection, which is just incredible. That's a great name. Um, It's pretty good, but like, yeah, Johnny Dean, the singer, remarked at the time, strange, I wouldn't have put the words menswear and box set together, but I'm happy about it because it'll surprise people how much music we actually recorded. (laughs) It's just like... It's quantity, not quality. Uh, that, that, that's also very what I did on my summer holidays or something. There's just something yeah, so yeah, innocent yeah. about it. Wow. I mean, I, I guess like, you know, uh, definitely guilty offenders, but also kind of not their fault in a way, maybe. Just like... Oh, listen, if you were in their position, you would have been along for the ride. I mean, what a time to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, a band now for my number three, uh, who it's closer to home because it is from home. And an act that have absolutely been savaged for years. I think they got one or two good songs. This is one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the best things Ireland has ever produced. Will you please welcome on stage in Edinburgh and Murrayfield, The Thrills! Hanging around 
it is, of course, the thrills. Memories. Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to step in here, Craig? <laughs> I have a it's lot of time for uh, the thrills, uh, but is it because they were is, so is it because they're on? Right. Is it because they're on the OC? Is it? Yeah. Oh my god, man! They were on the OC. That album came out. I think it was the summer. I was down the Guel talked. It's just like it's a perfect storm for Greg. It sure is. Um, and they were they were kind of a perfect storm for time. So they're an Irish pop act, you could say. Uh, formed in two thousand one, uh, led by Connor DC on vocals. And they were they were like some lads who were inspired by, I guess, the late sixties, early seventies. Off compared, off compared to Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't um, be great. They were listening to. Not quite. They were formed in the Dublin suburb of, uh, suburb of Black Rock um, and went to, like, you know, fucking Holly Park Boys School in Fox Rock. Uh, they get a lot of shit for being posh, Craig. Yeah. Do you agree with that? They do get a lot of shit for that. Um, do you think they should? Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, Is that classism? <laughs> no. no, no, I think, okay, right. no, I'm joking. I, I, I think they could write a pop song. Those melodies are very, very strong. And I think there's even stuff, like, the second album was... The reviews weren't great for that second. Yeah, Let's Bottle Bohemia. Uh, And the cover art was as bad as the name, if I recall correctly. But there was a couple of songs worth saving. And even like there was a third album, right? I think the lead single was pretty great. Um, The third album was uh, when it all went wrong. They were, uh, the third album was called Teenager. So the story goes that like they were young men, uh, obviously coming from privileged backgrounds, which may or may not have uh, played a part in their connections getting to the top. They did a gig in Temple Music Centre. Apparently Morrissey was present for some of their rehearsals. The industry fell over themselves to be like, this is the next big thing. We're going to make them. Um, Next thing you know, they're out on the road and they're getting like, you know, name dropped by like Noel Gallagher and U2 and various others. Um... I don't hate them necessarily. Um, they, I, I think, like Big Sur, there I, I find to be a quite enjoyable song, but they were definitely fairly pretentious and kind of just pa- like pastiche to the point of it being a bit well, ridiculous. Yeah, and wasn't it like if I remember correctly from all the interviews around that debut album, they'd gone to like they were living in Santa Cruz on their fucking J one, right? And that's where the record came into being. So it was like. It was kind of the posh lads just went out uh, on a summer holiday and suddenly thought they were the Beach Boys. But, and you, you mentioned the connections and stuff, unless they had someone else writing the songs, I think those songs are really, really strong. Like, they, it, they've got some good songs. Like, this is a good song. Good Whatever happened to Corey Haim is a good song. You know, nothing really more, but good radio hits. It's a bit, I, I, I think it's a bit like, you can't do a lot with it. Like, especially, I, I think like, you know, the best, the best songs are quite visible. And then the rest of it is just kind of like more of the same. And it's a bit kind of wishy-washy, not great. Um, they There's an amazing video on YouTube, right? It's the most fucking Celtic Tiger thing I've ever mm. seen. Uh, there's some there's a wedding band, right? And like this is on YouTube. You can go look it up. Uh, it's uh, But there's a wedding band called Harlequin, who apparently have played at like big weddings, big celebrity weddings. And uh, they have a video up on their YouTube page of them at someone's wedding. It's just random non-celebrities i believe yeah. but connor dc of the thrills is there and he's on a stage this guy filming it and he's like filming himself with this maniacal happiness while he's filming it up close dancing with connor dc and he's singing this song 
and it's awful and it's terrible and at the end of it your man is like you know he gets on the mic and goes the last time I saw this guy he was playing to 70,000 people in the Phoenix Park give him a round oh. of applause and like Carnegie he looks like his soul is leaving yeah. his body um, they, I, I don't know if they had a bad relationship with the media but I kind of feel like they did um, I know that one of them went on one of them went on to manage Little Green Cars I know that much yeah and, and it's kind of it seemed like his experiences with the trills uh, informed his approach to the press thereafter right is that fair to say that seems yeah. to, potentially like, I don't know. there's talk of that we, we can't confirm or deny that but there was talk that maybe it had a bit of an influence on how Little Green Cars were perceived which I don't know how fair that is but ultimately and hey look Little Green Cars are an act that you could probably consider for a list like this as well um, I just saw thrills, for him, so maybe the problem's with me I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look, listen overhyped I need to I, I need to re-emphasize it overhyped does not necessarily mean bad like it doesn't and Little Green Cars have got some good songs the thrills have got some good songs it seems to be though a case of the rich kids ran out of road and the record label were like we're not really supporting you anymore and then that was it and it just felt to me like it was like you likened it to like their their four months in Santa Cruz like milling around playing at being a band it just seems like when the going got tough they were done they didn't leave much of a legacy they were kind of a fever dream and I don't know I mean, I know Lauren Murphy of Entertainment Daily had an article about two years ago that was like five Irish acts we wish would reform. And she picked the thrills as one of them. And she was kind of like, you know, if you can't get behind some of these songs, some of their melodies, you don't have a heart. And I understand that. And like I say, I do like some of the thrills songs. We've got the recorded work. I don't know if we need the bands to get back together. I just don't know how much of an identity there was like here outside of, you know, five rich lads playing around. Yeah. Yeah. Um. There's a few tunes there, I'll say, but that's fair. Okay, let's go to a completely different spectrum of band. Uh, <laughs> what do you get when you've a Birmingham band that want to be from Manchester and a terrible band that the enemy want to be good? You get this, Dave. Feels like my teeth are falling out From all the gibberish that's been pouring out my mouth What was I thinking? What was I doing without me? Exhausted, man, it was time for Phil But it's not a good way to start a day And always got me no good I don't want to face the world Though I know I should Tell myself I won't do it again <laughs> All the uh, <laughs> All the drama of a fucking Soccer AM end credits reel You are now entering Landfill Indie <laughs> That was wide <laughs> awake it up. A song about a hangover or a come down Or something and chatting up a MILF uh, You know Just over a bed of Very edge Sounding guitars as well I remember when these guys arrived It was about 2007-ish Um and it was one of those names, like the band name alone, you're like, all right, this is done. It's kind of the like twang. the enemy. Do you know what I mean? It's like the, the, the definite article is done. All of this music is done. And people weren't ready for it to be done quite yet. Uh, Love It When I Feel Like This was the debut album. Um, and it sold a lot. I think it got to number three in the UK. They were signed to Be Unique, um, which had a roster that included The Ordinary Boys, Kaiser Chiefs, The Automatic, um, oh, One Label. Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's... Uh, they don't seem like totally hateable blokes, but I think they're very much the band where it's like Oasis are the real deal. 
And then to them, like, the Happy Mondays are absolutely mental. They're like, you know, black mid. <laughs> um, I think they were grasping for something approaching Kasabian and didn't quite get there. Um, to sum it up, I guess, I was just looking at some of the articles written about them. Um, there's one from Gigwise, March 2007. And the interview was entitled, Believe the Hype? Question mark. And then Digital Spy, May 2009. The twang, we were ruined by hype. <laughs> um, which is like pretty good. Um, Phil Edridge from the band was um, talking about how they went from going to work every day to being like A-list on Radio 1, the front of the enemy, all within the space of three months. And he says, I remember getting on the tour bus on the first tour in the van and saying, fucking hell, um, you know, I've just had a ding-dong with the missus and tour manager was like, just tell her you'll see her in a couple of years. He said, you know, he didn't think it was ever going to end. Uh, he, he was like, <laughs> thinking about, thinking of stuff like, what size swimming pool am I going to have? Um, and then he <laughs> remembers his manager phoning him and just saying, radio one or off. And I was like, what? How? It's just decided. And that was it. It was done. There was no more. They're oh still God. together. But um, probably like a loyal fan base of like people on Facebook um, selling maybe a few hundred copies. But Sorry, they're still together. They're like still Pigeon together. We mentioned them on this show. Um, Might have been this year or last year because they popped up in my feed because they were covering the Blue Nile, Tinseltown in the Rain. And I remember thinking, oh, they actually like this song. I think that might be the sole reason I was like, they're not the most hateable lads around. I just they they're just not, didn't though. seem like they were they're, in the same Venn diagram. But but they're 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 so lightweight. Like it's like puddle water music. Like there's just nothing really here, is there? And like it's funny because like they didn't have an impact for me at all. Like I mean, and yet even acts like the enemy. I'm not saying I like these acts. Just to clarify ahead of time, the enemy, pigeon detectives. Uh, you know, even the fucking ting tings. It's like. I, like they, uh, these acts at least all had their moment, right? Had like one bigger, one or two big songs. I can't like. Is this the Twang's big song? Because I don't fucking know it. Like, yeah, is it this- is. And yeah, like outside of the kind of decent album sales in the UK, they didn't really have a moment. It was, it was the moment really when that whole landfill thing was running on fumes and just bands that were being hyped up in the Enemy Q magazine. I remember at the time, just kind of like. Every month there'd be a kind of new one. The twang really encapsulate that where it's just like they, they went nowhere. You'd check out one or two of the songs and just go, well, this is, you know, rubbish. And thousands of other bands are doing this and these tracks are like on their MySpace right now. What is the hype about? They've just been plucked and just it was kind of like thrown at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, this did not stick, Dave. Okay, so my number two this week, um, we're we're going back, we're going to America, and we're going back to the mid-2000s, you know, working in Extra Vision, and this is on, and I actually think it's a good song, I still think it's a good song, everyone knows it, but uh, yeah, let's see what you think. This is hype, this is pure hype. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> That was uh, quite the partridgian, I suppose you could say, yell of of approval from Craig there <laughs> as we entered into The Bravery. The song is, of course, an honest mistake. You like The Bravery, do you? Name five of their songs. You can't, can you? I bet honest you can only name this one. five times. That's all you need. <laughs> so it's uh, it's Brandon Flower's favourite band here, of course. 
I can't uh, believe you. Yeah, once upon a time, this was a proper legitimate rivalry. The bravery and the killers. Who would succeed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, can you give can you give some background on that one? They hated each other. They did. There was a, again. This was just like I think both of them being very canny uh, in terms of how to use the enemy, essentially. And um, there was a lot of back and forth, uh, kind of every fucking week between Sam Endicott, who's the lead vocalist for the Bravery, and I think I think Brandon kind of just got dragged into it a little bit. They were already being honest totally out of sight of the bravery but they were both doing that kind of like electro throwbacky thing uh very 80s sounding thing so i think it was probably wise that it probably earns the bravery another like extra 15 minutes just trying to establish that as a narrative but it turned out they didn't really have the songs at all and sam endicott is like a hilarious dude i think he'd been in like a cod reggae band just before he was in the bravery it just seems like a total <laughs> opportunist there's that you know story i referenced the whole time of go like on do it, again, asked do it again do it again what people would be be wearing next year <laughs> and he said pictures of my face on her t-shirts oh like, my god incredible um <laughs> so, so that was stupid. the guy and that's the bravery summed up that's the bravery yeah brandon Flair went in though when he went in because he's normally a very polite guy and he eventually was just like he was like look all i'm saying is he was like i've heard he can't even hit those high notes i can oh, yeah, hit those high yeah, notes yeah. and he, he can like, whoa he certainly can <laughs> uh, honest honest mistake is a banger to be fair um let's check in with the enemy though and their review of the self-titled album by paul moody in 2005 here's the closing paragraphs <clears throat> we'd be kidding ourselves of course to suggest that the bravery has the cultural cachet of say is this it its primary <laughs> aim <laughs> I knew that would pop you. Its primary aim is to provide slick electro rock satisfaction rather than a deeper emotional engagement. And in a world where the Killers album Hot Fuss has sold millions on being a masterclass in nowness musically, the bravery matches it 12 months on. It's not so much what pop music has been moving towards this century as a distillation of all that has been good in non-UK pop this decade. It boasts the opaque lyricism of the strokes, the glitz of the killers, and the brutal sheen of U2. Yet, for all the accusations of cynicism which will inevitably be levelled at it, the bravery is still an oddly affecting document just as Duran Duran aspired to be the band to dance to band to dance to when the bomb drops so the bravery famously formed as a reaction to the horrors that beset New York in the wake of 9-11 did they famously reform to combat 9-11 what that's that can't be a thing again i remember a, why do i know all these fucking interviews what a waste of <laughs> magazine years your q magazine i remember roar. sam endicott being like talking about 9-11 being like oh yeah after that happened like new york was crazy everyone was just like running around fucking each other and we decided to start a band and it's just like we have to do something creative i remember him saying that but it, it was clearly like just a narrative another thing he came up with well, this review closes off by saying that the band's way of coping has been to plunder their record collections and make an album full of hooks, harmonies and effortless melodies which is as bold, silly and exciting as all the best pop. It's a winning combination of bravado and ground zero substance that might just end up as the biggest album of the year. Uh, it wasn't, I will say that. Uh, Sam Endicott spoke to The Guardian at the end of that decade and he basically said that like, it all went wrong, especially in the UK. I think he like he blamed the UK for a lot of the problems, I think, and just like how they were marketed or how they weren't marketed. Um, and he's, he told the label not to release their second album in the UK. And essentially that didn't happen for some reason. Like, it was just a weird kind of fallout. They did a UK tour in 2007 with no promotion, just the real fans. And he said, he's, he's since gone on by there to write songs for like Santa Gold and MIA. He wrote She-Wolf for Shakira. He wrote a Christina Aguilera song. Oh, okay. So he's doing fine. But he does say... Um, 
You could say it's worked out for me, but it still hurts what happened to the bravery in the UK. If I think about it too much, it starts to kill my spirit. It's a slimy business, and I regret that I trusted people. It's very hard for me to trust anyone now. That was 12 years ago. Maybe he's moved on. I know I have. And I will say, at least they released an album, which you can't say the same for my number one. Um, Of course. Can you guess what it is, Dave? Is it Jolene and the Jing Jang Jong? It just might be. (laughs) It's Jolene and the Jing, Jang Jong, and that was Lonely Boy, uh, B-U-O-Y, for whatever reason, and that was them in all of their sub-Razor-like glory, um, very much the same kind of era, 2007, um, huge amount of hype, uh, their debut single was Lucio Starts Fires, and um, the enemy were like, yeah, again, we found one, we found one, um... <laughs> <laughs> The diamond in the haystack. <laughs> Jolene, um, uh, Joe Van Wyland, was that his name? I think you might know him as well from, he appeared as Jamie Chapman in Peep Show. Um, he was in The Tudors as well, I think. And most recently, um, Star Wars The Last Jedi, he was temporary command center resistance uh, pilot number one. Um, let's take a little listen to this guy in action alongside his... I'd imagine long-suffering guitarist um, when he was being interviewed backstage at the NME Awards at the time. I think it'd be like the lo- be nice to win the Lifetime Achievement one in about 20 years. That's the award we'd like to, like to win. For the Godlike Genius Award, I don't know. Has Tom Waits won it yet? Or maybe Apex Twin? It's a, a epic gig's like... You know, whenever a gig goes well, it's always like it's always amazing. But it's I'm always completely out of it. Like I can't concentrate on anything when I'm on the stage. I don't really know. I always feel emotional afterwards or something. It usually takes me about half an hour, so now it's kind of come down off the thing. <laughs> oh, there he is in all his glory. You need to see the video as well. Check that out on YouTube. But um, he's uh, he's <laughs> such parody. He's got the full look for the time. He's got like a tie done up, but like under the shirt. <laughs> just around his neck and um yeah his guitarists are trying to answer one question him just leaping in and being like oh yeah thanks so much to kind of come down after the show and his looks the camera as well when he's like asked who he thinks should get the lifetime achievement award and he's just like tom waits apex twin meanwhile these guys are doing that kind of music do you know what i mean it's just the disparity between where they actually were and where they thought they were it's just crazy the main thing about this band, of course, is that they made an album. Um, I haven't heard it. Have you, Dave? Not no. many people have. No, th- this is released. this is up there with <laughs> with Jay Paul, like for so long of just this mythical thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly like Jay Paul. Um, yeah, their debut album was um, scrapped thirteen days before uh, it was due to be released. But hang on, the band said it didn't. Yeah, 
did it not get like a five star review in the NME or something? So glowing NME. Yeah, I've got the review here if you want it. Yes, please. The band themselves, their own review of it was that it didn't represent their current sound. Um, we never got to hear their current sound either because they kind of fell apart quickly. Some of the people in the band did form um, Toy, the kind of psych post-punk act, which I think are kind of quite well received. Not the lead singer. But yeah, here's I dug up the review. So um, here's the opening gambit. Um <laughs> from Gavin Haynes at the time. Like some update of the Robert Johnson legend, it was at Jolene and the Jing Jang Jong 7th gig at London's borderline that the darkling forces of industry gathered, listened, and pronounced them the new saviours of everything. <laughs> and then he goes on to say that, like, they couldn't live up to that, but, you know, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's still fantastic. <laughs> I'm just Christ. scrolling through it here. He, yeah, he calls Jolene one of the most striking pop stars this country has produced in years. An unearthly thin wolf in Spiv's clothing, gifted with a mouth so gobby that it makes other mouths look like mere apertures. The Jesus guy who wants Christ. nine-year-old girls and eight-year-old men in different countries to dance to his music at the same time. Underneath all his sky-vaulting ambition, though, lurks enormous potential. There is no smoke without fire, and no, Lucio starts fires without a furnace of talent beneath. And if Joe hasn't quite made the album that walks like he talks, it's only because the talk was so weighty to begin with. And then it goes on to say, yeah, on its own terms, uh, it's a fine piece of work, genuinely innovative <laughs> debut that takes a whole tradition of soul and doo-wop and stretches it over the chassis of the latest post-Strokesian thinking in dueling guitar indie. Fuck it goes me. on shimmering, sharply cut. I, I, I can't go on. This is absolutely painful. My God. This is like, yeah. how, how is this? And are you sure this enemy and not hot press? Because that is very hot press. It has everything. Yeah, the, yeah I mean, I did actually dig up um, a hot press interview with Jolene from the same time. Uh, it was written by Patrick Frayne. Um He's a much more self-aware writer. He's a good writer, and fair play. <laughs> yeah, he was very suspicious of the whole thing. And it's a great article. It's actually a free article. You can check it out as well. Uh, he leads with, um, Jolene is the great-grandson of Edward Bernays, the man considered to be the father of modern PR. And then he kind of says, yeah, no, it's hard not to see a straight line connecting. And when you look at the hyper machine surrounding Jolene and the Jing Jang Jong, there's some great quotes in there um, where Jolene is talking about how he's really inspired by 19th century Victorian era culture. And then Patrick Frayne proceeds to kind of rip the piss. So that was, yeah, my number one, Jolene and the Jing Jang Jong. Had a feeling. What could it be, man? Had a feeling, had a feeling it might be. Um, my number one is probably, like, it wasn't, it wasn't my number one. It wasn't even in my list for a while. Uh, Bravery were going to be my number one. And then I was like, I thought about it. And I thought I have to be true to myself. I know it's kind of going over old wounds, but I kind of have to do it. So with apologies to a recent guest of the show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's my number one overhyped act. Let's do it. How you doing? How about this? Look at these guys. I say, look at these guys. I think it's it. Yeah. It's. There they are. Their, their folks are picking them up after the yeah, show. Yeah, well. <laughs> Our next guests are an acclaimed young rock and roll band from Cavan, Ireland, and their debut album is entitled Snapshot. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program, The Stripes.
Yes, complete with uh, typically venerating David Letterman intro. It is, of course, The Stripes. Now, it should be noted that, of course, guitarist Josh McClory was on the show recently. Friend he, of the show. Friend of the show. <laughs> Up until uh, this episode. <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 hope, I, hope, I hope this won't affect it, but it, maybe it will, and maybe I'm taking that risk, and I shouldn't. Episode 240 in October. It was our top five TV show theme tunes episode. We had a great conversation with Josh on there which included us talking about the stripes and talking about my opposition to the stripes and the whole thing. So I'm not looking to kind of, I'm not looking to fuck that up and I'm not looking to hurt anybody and go over old ground too much. But if I, th- if I sat and if I thought about it, this is the most overhyped act I've been in kind of, I suppose, adjacent to, you know, cause I mean like, 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 like to get into that element of it, of course, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm sure y'all do. The Stripes were a four piece rock act from Cavan. They were styled on bands of yore, like Dr. Feelgood and so on. There were four teenagers in suits playing blues rock, all playing well, it should be said. They're all talented guys. I'm not taking that away from them. But to me, I just saw a gimmick and I was in the hot press offices at a time when I was quite disillusioned with how things were going there. And it did feel to me, you know, and I guess there are no innocent bystanders, Craig, because you did do two cover stories on these guys, of course. Uh, not that I'm accusing anybody of anything. I'm just saying that ultimately I, 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 I sat by and did nothing. So, like, I'm just as culpable, really. But essentially, <laughs> I just saw this thing being very sold. And again, as I must reiterate, as, I, as we talked about it with Josh as well, my beef is not with the guys. They were fucking kids. And to go back to what Craig was saying about menswear, if it was you in that position, you would absolutely do it. And I'm sure I would have, too. But it just to me was the apex of music industry hype. It was like, it felt manufactured. I don't care about the manufactured thing. I love pop music, whatever. But this just felt so, so hardcore product to me. I didn't see any soul in it. I saw a gimmick. I saw a short lifespan. I saw a product being marketed towards Buka Jean dads who wanted to relive their glory days. And that's fine. I just didn't buy into it. People did. And I was constantly told how wrong I was and this, that and the other. And I just didn't think it had any heart or soul whatsoever. Um, so yeah, that's just, uh, like, to me, it was just the ultimate in Nile fucking Stokes hot press being like, these guys are the future of music. And it's like, no, they're not. They're absolutely not. I'm sorry. Well, it was, you know, in terms of heart and soul, obviously the guys in the band um, were prodigious talents, kind of instrumentally, really into the fucking music and some of those cover stories, like, I always enjoy talking to them and what kind of a great story at the time like just everything they were going through was so surreal for guys of such young ages and they I was like I it was an absolute pleasure doing those features because it was like <laughs> doing interviews in kind of Supermax and them just kind of like being slightly out of school but also getting hyped by Dave Grohl and Debbie Harry and Elton John being like take you on tour and just like what a story. But yeah, it was this kind of the whole kerfuffle around the actual music and stuff was very cynically geared towards, as you say, that audience. It, it perfectly fits the bill of Overhyped, where it was, here is real music done by young fellas and your fate is now restored because this kind of thing that you remember is back and it's, you know, better than ever. And it wasn't quite. And you know, when we had Josh on here, he was saying he knew that himself. They were finding their feet. Um, they probably could have done without the hype. And maybe, you know, if they were still a band now and they'd just been plugging away, going kind of under the radar, they might be doing way more interesting stuff now, um, as opposed to doing interesting stuff separately. But yeah, the whole explosion around them was mind boggling. Um, 
I remember, yeah, being at like festivals at you and Debbie Harry would be on stage being like, the stripes are incredible. I'm like the biggest fan. And that Letterman thing, it just feels like, how did that actually happen? How did it get that big? But there was others. There was Dave Grohl, Elton John, Noel Gallagher, Paul Weller, you name it. But it just, to me, it just, it it did feel like a, like there was some kind of weird Stephen King-esque horror device for older rockers to live vicariously through and like i'm not even against the concept of that but it's more that i was just told point blank this is the thing and they fucking rule and it just felt so wrong to me from the beginning and i I say this with no prejudice towards the guys happy to plug their new act because the remaining members are in an act called zen arcade i haven't checked them out but i'm sure the music is more interesting josh mcclory of course who i thought was the most interesting guy in that group is making his own solo music right now i would encourage people to go back and check out that interview if you haven't heard it he's a cool guy and I hope we can still be friends. We did say that when the whole pandemic thing calms down, we get a point together. After he hears this, look, listen, Josh, first one's on me, okay? <laughs> if he's got this far in the episode, he deserves a point. <laughs> we all do, absolutely. And that's our top five most overhyped acts. That is no encore for this week. Craig and I will be back next week. You can always get in touch with us, whether it's via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash noencore. You can suggest top fives to us there, all that kind of stuff. Get involved, give us some of your own experiences, like the couple of guys you mailed in this week. We want to hear more of that kind of stuff. We're at noencore show on Twitter, noencore show at gmail.com. This episode was edited by a Sonic Architect who, as far as I'm concerned, has just not been hyped up enough, Craig. It is, of course, the wonderful, the talented, the amazing Adam Shanahan, who we love dearly. And uh, that's No Encore for this week. We'll be back next week with a brand new show. Craig, Dave, No Encore. Goodbye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Zenny's Blocks lenses help to protect the eyes by keeping harmful blue light out. Because they're virtually clear, add blocks to any Zenny frame for stylish, all-day protection. Get a complete pair of prescription or non-prescription blocks glasses starting at just $24. Protect your eyes now at zenny.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.